Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When 19-year-old Danielle Davis is found dead in her college apartment, the sheer brutality of the crime puts investigators to the test. It seemed that whoever did this had lost complete control. Police in Statesboro, Georgia know they'd better be quick studies and find this co-ed's killer fast. The students wondered whether there was a serial killer running around, wondered if they were in danger. No one knows who'd want to teach this pretty, popular student a fatal lesson. Danielle didn't have enemies. She didn't have anybody that wanted to do harm to her. Was it someone who'd studied her every move, or just a random act of evil? There was a lot of speculation. Maybe she had interrupted a burglary. Maybe her boyfriend got angry with her. There, there were rumors flying. When investigators bone up on their suspects, they discover you can't judge a book by its cover. I think he snapped, completely lost control, and I think the real person that was lurking beneath the surface is what came out that night. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? The tiny college town of Statesboro, Georgia, is steeped in Southern hospitality. So longtime locals just smile and shake their heads when freshman Brandy Danielle Davis speeds by in her sports car. She's only been in Statesboro for three months, but she's already a familiar sight on Main Street. When Danielle turned 18, she bought a sports car with some money she had inherited from her grandmother. Her friends will tell you riding around in that Mercedes with her was the best fun they'd ever had because she made it fun. <laughs> In the fall of 2009, the pint-sized brunette who goes by Danielle is living it up as a co-ed at Ogeechee Tech, one of the town's three colleges. Danielle Davis was a typical college student. She was a very happy, very outgoing young lady. She had a lot of friends, liked to have fun. 
And as the semester speeds to a close, you can find this It Girl's sweet wheels parked outside all the hottest holiday parties. Danielle was a very magnetic personality, all by herself. <laughs> she had this grand, obnoxious, funny laugh that just drew people to her. You couldn't help but laugh with her because it was so funny. With her infectious personality, Danielle attracts both girls and boys like moths to a flame, including her on-again, off-again beau an hour away in Savannah. She always had a boyfriend, but she always made time for her girlfriends. But Danielle's not all party girl. She's got a serious side, too. In fact, Danielle plans to spend her winter break at home with her mom, who's having heart surgery. And that's why Danielle has chosen a major in healthcare. I think that my diagnosis really steered her towards wanting to be a cardiac ultrasound tech. I really believe that in my heart. Because if she couldn't save me, she might be able to save somebody else. Little does Danielle know that her generosity is about to get her in trouble. This sweet Georgia peach will soon cross paths with one very bad apple. Tuesday, December 8, 2009, is a busy day for Danielle Davis and her family. Mom is nervously awaiting heart surgery and counting on Danielle to be there once she wraps up at school. Danielle's supposed to make the three-hour drive to the hospital right after her morning exam. I was very nervous about it, and I was glad that Danielle would be able to be home for my procedure. Grandma Dale, who's already by daughter Stephanie's side, is keeping an eye out for Danielle. But as the clock strikes one and Stephanie's ready to roll into the OR, there's no sign of Danielle and no answer on her cell phone. Stephanie called probably five or six times. I called at least that many times, maybe more. And when Danielle didn't answer her phone, I knew it had to be something horrible. It was just unthinkable for Danielle not to be there because Danielle was always there when her mother had any kind of uh, medical procedure done. Already stressed by Stephanie's surgery, Grandma fears the worst for Danielle. I truthfully thought automobile accident because I knew she'd been staying up late to study for the exam, and I thought, well, maybe she fell asleep or something happened. The last thing I said to my mom before I went into surgery was, find Danielle, something's not right. Grandma Dale wastes no time doing what her daughter asks. She immediately calls Danielle's off-campus apartment manager. And I said, would you go check to see if she's okay because she's supposed to be here for her mother. And, and she's not. And they said, no problem. We'll call you back in about 20 minutes or a half hour. Unfortunately, Grandma Dale's worst fears are about to come true. After a quick look inside Danielle's apartment, the building manager calls 911 instead. It's just after three in the afternoon when Statesboro police officer Jody Stafford gets an alarming call from dispatch. The manager of Campus Crossing made the nine, initial 911 call. 
when they discovered her body and Danielle was dead. And with just three years on the job, Officer Stafford isn't sure what to think. One of the, uh, one of the thoughts that went through my mind that this could be a student that just passed out from drinking too much the night before. We do have calls like that sometimes. Kids just get too drunk and somebody thinks they're dead because they can't wake them up. But when the officer arrives at the apartment complex on Lanier Road, it's clear that what happened here was no party. The distraught building manager is standing outside Danielle's second floor unit with a coworker. Both are clearly shaken. Well, you could tell they had seen something horrific, that one was on the verge of sobbing, and the gentleman was just very shocked, and, and he just had a blank look on his face like he was in disbelief. The manager says that when Danielle didn't answer her door, he let himself in with the master key. But what he saw sent him running out in a panic. Stafford sees why he was so upset. The bedroom is the scene of a vicious fight that Danielle clearly lost. She was down uh, on the floor by the bed in front of her desk. Uh, she had a laundry basket with folded clothes in it placed on top of her. Danielle's computer chair is piled on top of her too, making detectives wonder whether her killer had a personal grudge. It seemed that the killer was almost trying to bury Danielle, uh, which would make me think that there was certainly some type of emotional connection there. When police carefully remove each item, they learn more about the terrifying last moments of Danielle's life. Her shirt is yanked up and her face is beaten. Although her pink sweatpants are still on, Officer Stafford ventures a guess as to what happened. Immediately, I thought maybe some type of uh, sexual assault. That was the initial thing that went through my mind that might have happened, was uh, some type of rape had happened. And that's not all. Two electrical cords are wrapped around her neck, one from her laptop, the other from her boombox. Still, even that wasn't enough for this killer. It was also appeared to be marks of a manual strangulation. But most horrible of all is what the officers see sticking out of Danielle's mouth. A mechanical pencil lodged in her throat. It's a classic case of overkill. Someone had it in for Danielle and wanted to make sure she was dead. You start feeling this, this kind of anger well up inside of you about how this could happen and who, what kind of person could do this to an innocent college girl. No one's more devastated by the news than Danielle's grandma, Dale, who's still waiting for Stephanie to get out of surgery. How am I gonna tell Stephanie that Danielle is dead? That's all I could think, because I thought it might kill her. Since Stephanie's very fragile, doctors ask Dale to wait 24 hours. When she finally tells Stephanie the terrible truth, it seems her daughter's heart will break for good. Um, dealing with Danielle's passing away was um, probably the worst thing ever. I hope I don't ever have to experience anything like that again.
To ease her pain, Danielle's mom racks her brain to help detectives find her daughter's killer. My first thought was nobody would want to hurt her. And then when I started thinking about things that had been going on in her life, you start wondering. Does mom remember something that detectives need to know? Did one of Danielle's friends turn into her worst enemy? Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone. Introducing Hot and Deadly from ID, your podcast for classic American true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy. On each episode, you'll hear some of ID's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal, from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered. Listen to Hot and Deadly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tuesday, December 8th, 2009, is a date students at Ogeechee Technical College won't soon forget. Everyone has heard about the pretty brunette who was found murdered in her bedroom. The murder of Daniel Davis was shocking. To have someone in their own apartment so close to the campus killed in such a way, it, it was disturbing. Newspaper reporter Holly Deal Bragg doesn't remember the last time folks were so scared. These students were frightened. They had a lot of questions. They wondered whether there was a serial killer running around, wondered if they were in danger, had the same questions everybody else did. But the anxiety that locals feel can't compare with the anguish Danielle's family is experiencing. When I found out how she died, I asked God, how that could happen to my grandchild. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was mad. 
Danielle, she didn't have enemies. Who would want to do this to her? That's what the Statesboro Police Department intends to find out. And they're hoping the addition of veteran DA investigator, Jake Wynn, will help close the book on this case. It was finals week. All the students and potential witnesses are fixing to go home for the Christmas break. So that kind of expedited everything that we had to do during that week. Remaining students assemble outside Danielle's apartment building in an impromptu vigil. The longer we stayed at the scene, the more crowd grew. And you see some students in a group praying, some students in a group crying. No one is more surprised than the police when the somber group yields a lead. Turns out, two guys in the crowd may have the inside scoop on Danielle's last hours. Jared Cook and Kurt Hyde approached investigators and, and stated that they had actually been with Danielle the night before. You have people coming forward saying that they were with her the night of her death is, is key. They were some of the last people that saw her alive, and they may have had clues as to who could have done this to her. Danielle's buddies say they were at her apartment the night before. Hoping something they say might help the investigation, Jared and Kurt give detectives a play-by-play -play of that fateful night. The two tell police they headed over to Danielle's apartment around 9 o'clock, along with Danielle's old high school friend, Daryl Priestley. When they said goodbye around 10.30, Jared and Kurt say she was in good spirits. They hung out, just relaxed, I think watched a little Monday Night Football. And then at some point around 10.30, Danielle said, you know, you guys need to go, I've got to study. Jared and Kurt say they were back at their place, just down the block, when the murder went down. Daryl headed to the library to hit the books. Even though Jared and Kurt seem sincere, investigators still plan to keep an eye on them. I think the impression that Jared and Kurt gave when they were interviewed by law enforcement was that they were being very forthright about their comings and goings. Only time and the third musketeer, Daryl Priestley, will tell. But Wynn's been calling Daryl for several hours with no response. While investigators try to get a handle on Daryl's whereabouts, the coroner's report arrives. Despite their suspicions, Danielle was not sexually assaulted. Knowing that didn't happen in her last minutes was a little bit of comfort in, uh, to the community and I know to her family. Unfortunately, Danielle couldn't escape a horrible death. There was a bruising and dried blood on her face and her ear, and it appeared that she had been struck multiple times in the face and on the side of the head before she was murdered. In addition to the brutal beating Danielle endured, the Emmy confirms that she was strangled to death with both of the cords found wrapped around her neck. The meticulous Emmy also discovers that the killer left a little something behind on the weapons, skin cells. When you find DNA, like this case, on a ligature, you've essentially got the killer's DNA, and then it's just a matter of finding a match for that DNA. 
Is the rightful owner someone investigators already have their sights on, or someone else in Danielle's inner circle? Whoever the callous killer was, he didn't stop after Danielle breathed her last. The coroner is certain the pencil found jammed into her mouth was put there post-mortem. When I found out that that was a post-mortem injury, the big question for me was, you know, why? Um, what purpose did the pencil serve? Was it some form of torture or a bizarre calling card left by a deranged killer? Detectives aren't sure just yet. Any investigator worth his salt knows just about any man in the cute co-ed's life could have done it. Was it one of the three suspects already on their radar or someone else, either on campus or off? Maybe even Danielle's sometime boyfriend, Shane Allman, who lives an hour away in Savannah. There are many cases, obviously, where uh, the boyfriend or love interest has actually committed this type of crime. When detectives start looking into Shane, they learn that he and Danielle often spent time together in Shane's neck of the woods. While Shane claims he hasn't seen Danielle in a few weeks, investigators wouldn't be doing their jobs if they didn't dig a little deeper. Given his relationship with the victim, um, I think it deemed further scrutiny on his part to exclude him as a suspect, given um, the history of crimes of passion. So investigators dial up distraught Shane, who's got quite a lot to say. Shane offered some uh, insight into uh, what happened the night before with Danielle. You know, I'm getting almost an eyewitness of what's going on, and it's just unbelievable. Just one day after pretty co-ed Danielle Davis is found strangled to death in her apartment, rumors run rampant through the college town of Statesboro, Georgia. There was a lot of speculation. People thought maybe she had interrupted a burglary. Maybe it was someone that got angry with her over something. Maybe it was a boyfriend. Something Ogeechee Assistant District Attorney Daphne Gerald has already considered. It was clear that whoever killed Danielle um, had a lot of emotion going on. There was a lot of injury inflicted to her body, a lot of things that seemed to point to the idea that she knew her killer. And so Shane Allman, being her sometimes boyfriend and somebody that police wanted to talk to. My family was in contact with Shane. As a mom, you think, oh, well, you know, it could have been anybody, you know, at that point. So I, I said, do you think that Shane could have been involved in this? Danielle had just met Shane a few months earlier while working a part-time job. Danielle used to go down to Savannah to waitress on the weekends and earn some extra money. Even though the two hit it off immediately, between the distance and Danielle's dedication to school, it was hard for the couple to be anything more than weekend lovebirds. Still, Mom Stephanie was a big fan. When I met Shane, I really, I really liked him. Um, and it was clear to me that he just thought the world of Danielle. Steadfast Shane swears he had nothing to do with Danielle's murder and says he only wants to help investigators any way possible. But detectives aren't so sure Shane's the sweetheart he claims to be. 
In speaking with Shane on the phone, he didn't sound as remorseful as I thought he should sound. Um, he wasn't crying. He didn't sound as upset as I thought someone in that position should sound. Shane says he was in Savannah when Danielle was murdered. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's innocent. It, it would have been certainly possible um, for somebody to have driven an hour from Savannah uh, to Statesboro, commit this crime, and then return to Savannah uh, long before Danielle was ever found. Shane insists that not only was he at home, he tells investigators he may have been on the phone with Danielle when her killer came calling. Shane indicated that Danielle had called him on the phone around 10.35 on Monday, the night that she was killed. Unbeknownst to Shane, it was only minutes after Danielle's friends, Jared, Kurt, and Daryl, claimed they left her apartment. They were on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes when she got a knock at the door. Danielle was scared because uh, she was by herself. Shane suggested answer the door with him on the phone. So if something unusual happened, he could call 911 for her. So she went to answer the door and looked to see who it was. And she said, oh, it's just Abby Norris. I'll call you back and let me answer the door. And hung up with him. He said that's the last time he spoke with her. Shane says he tried calling Danielle back several times before falling asleep. But when she didn't answer, he figured she was either visiting with her friend, Abby, or studying for her morning exam. Investigators wonder if Shane's account is on the up and up. You get a, a gut feeling a lot of times in police work, and it was just a gut feeling something wasn't right. Investigator Wynn asks Shane to stay close to his phone, knowing there's one surefire way to check out his story. By tracking down the person who detectives now think may have been the last one to see Danielle alive, her friend, Abby. We need to talk with uh, Abby Norris. It's very important to locate her quickly because she could be a potential suspect or know the suspect at this point. With a little digging, detectives learn that Abby is a freshman at another college only a few minutes down the road. But when Investigator Wynn goes to talk to her, this pretty student draws a blank. In speaking with Abby, she seemed almost confused as to why she was even being questioned. Abby says she was not the person knocking on Danielle's door the night she was killed, and claims that between studying for finals and the upcoming holidays, the two busy friends hadn't seen each other in weeks which leaves investigators desperate to fill in the blanks. You've got Danielle Davis telling Shane Allman that it's Abby Norris at the door, but Abby denies this. Was there somebody at the door that Danielle didn't want Shane to know about? Was it Abby at the door, and did she not want police to know she was there? There's so many questions at this point you don't know. What you do know is it's not adding up. Someone's telling tales out of school. But to prove it's not her, Abby hands over her cell phone, confirming her story. After talking with Abby, we were able to corroborate her whereabouts by talking with other people. Uh, and the fact that she had willfully provided her cell phone for us to look through. And Abby's very appearance belies her involvement in Danielle's murder. She was a very petite girl, and the brutality of this attack 
to have been physically possible for Abby seemed highly unlikely. So does this mean Danielle lied to her long-distance lover about the identity of her late-night visitor? At that point, we um, suspected that either Shane was not being truthful or um, Danielle had not been truthful to Shane in telling him that Abby was at the door. Before investigators can shake up some answers about Shane, they get a surprise of their own when the missing third friend, Daryl Priestley, walks into the police station voluntarily. He was the last part of that group of three that they had not had a chance to talk with. The investigators were anxious to sit down with Daryl and talk through his account of what had happened on Monday the 7th. Suddenly, investigators find themselves face to face with a hulking teen who's disarmingly soft-spoken. At six foot two and over 200 pounds, it seems Daryl is a gentle giant who's eager to talk about that night. Daryl claims it was a little hard to chill out with the constant calls from Danielle's persistent beau, Shane. Daryl indicated that the phone calls from Shane to Danielle occurred while they were at the apartment sometime between 10 and 10.30. The way Daryl painted the picture, it was that Shane was repeatedly calling over and over and over. So that was, that was noteworthy. Yet they were calls Shane readily admitted to. So it's what Daryl says next that really makes investigator Wynn's ears perk up. Daryl recalled Danielle stating that she couldn't pick up because if he found out um, that there were three guys in her apartment, he would be upset. There was a conflict in in what Shane was saying and what Daryl was saying. So investigator Wynn asks about Daryl's own alibi. As friends Jared and Kurt had previously told detectives, Daryl claims that after leaving Danielle's apartment at 10.30, he went to the library to study. However, when investigator Wynn asks Daryl if anyone else can confirm his late night study session, things start to get a little dicey. We mentioned that the library has an excellent camera system and we would be able to see exactly what time that he entered and left the library that evening. He then backed up a bit and stated that he actually had not gone to the library. Daryl says he got to the library but didn't go in, realizing at the last minute that he'd forgotten the USB drive containing all his study materials. At this point, when he's given a second version of where he was um, at the time of her murder, it was very concerning. Daryl was recalling what he had done the night before, which should be very simple to do. With Daryl changing his story, police go one step further and ask him to volunteer his DNA, which he does willingly. Investigator Wynn hopes that Danielle's sometime suitor, Shane, will be just as accommodating. But before he can pick up the phone to dial up Shane, a hot new tip comes in, leading detectives in a completely different direction. A subject by the name of Mitch Carson had contacted Crime Stoppers in Savannah and stated that he had information regarding the death of Danielle Davis. Carson stated that uh, Danielle had contacted him by phone and stated that she was having trouble with an unknown male. Did Danielle's man trouble follow her back to Statesboro the night she was murdered? Or was she caught off guard by a complete stranger? Normally in December, the residents of Statesboro, Georgia are just counting down the days till Christmas. 
But in the winter of 2009, all anyone can do is tally the time that goes by with no answer to the question on everyone's lips. Who killed Danielle Davis? Certainly the Statesboro community wanted answers as well as an arrest. They wanted to know that the person responsible for this bizarre murder was behind bars. So parents would call the newspaper asking questions about how safe their child was. People were scared. On the morning of December 14th, seven days after she was killed, Danielle is laid to rest in her hometown of McDonough, Georgia. At her viewing, um, I decided I was gonna have a closed casket just because I didn't want them to see her looking different than her normal, radiant, you know, happy self. I didn't pay attention to how crowded it was, um, but I was told that it was standing room only, that it was, the church was full. It touched all of us in the family that most of the people there were young people, her friends and associates, people she knew. For detectives back in Statesboro, the plan is to bring down the bad guy no matter what. So when a promising lead comes in, investigators think this may be the break they're waiting for. There was a tip that came in from this guy who indicated that he had information about the Daniel Davis case. So that was something that the police definitely wanted to look into and explore. Turns out a tipster named Mitch Carson just might have some inside info that breaks this case wide open. Mitch says he spoke with Danielle just days before she was murdered, and during that call, she shared some unsettling news. That Danielle had been in Savannah recently and had had some trouble with, with the male. Could the man in question be Danielle's very own Shane, who just happens to live in Savannah? After all, the couple sometimes hung out at Shane's place. Or is a sneaky stranger to blame? It could have been possible that this unknown male had followed her from Savannah uh, and committed this murder. After Mitch tips off Savannah's boys in blue, they immediately contact the Statesboro Police Department with the potential lead. That piece of information was something that law enforcement jumped on very quickly. This seemed at the time to be a potential good lead in the case. When investigators sit down to talk with Mitch, the interview immediately takes an unexpected turn. Instead of just calling Danielle by her everyday name, he refers to her full name, Brandy Danielle Davis. Either he's one formal guy, or he's talking about someone else altogether. Mitch Carson, um, gave some more information about the Daniel Davis that he knew, and it became apparent to the officer that was speaking to him that we weren't talking about the same Daniel Davis. To make sure, detectives ask Mitch to put a name to the face. When Mr. Carson was shown a photograph of the victim in, in this case, uh, he stated that that, in fact, was not the Daniel Davis that he was referring to. Sure seems like a case of mistaken identity. Mitch tells police that the newspaper article he read about the murdered woman didn't include a photo. He now realizes he jumped the gun, assuming it was his troubled pal, Brandy Danielle. It was a different Daniel Davis, but same name, same spelling. Um, so we realized that the information did not pertain to our case. Police are flummoxed by the snafu, but the investigator's frustration doesn't compare with the despair Danielle's family feels. 
I had to have justice for Danielle. It was the number one priority. I was mad because there's so many really terrible people out there who cause other people pain all the time. And they live to be a hundred. And my grandchild turns 19 and is murdered. While in Savannah, detectives make a surprise visit to Danielle's friend, Shane, hoping he's had a change of heart about speaking with them face to face. However, Shane's attorney offers up another option. Shane's attorney provided a statement uh, from Shane uh, that detailed his involvement and his whereabouts and his contact, uh, both phone and otherwise, with Danielle on the day that she was murdered. Which prompts investigators to take a look at Danielle's phone records already in their possession. And they corroborate Shane's account of that Monday night, including the long-distance goodnight call from his girl. They were able to take the details in his statement. He gave very specific details about what time he received the call from Danielle, what time they got off the phone, all the efforts he made to call her back and text her to see if she was okay because Danielle indicated that she would call him back after she answered the door. Thanks to detailed information about where calls originated, detectives now know Shane was squarely in Savannah at the time of Danielle's murder. Police determined that he was still at home when she was killed. Shane may be in the clear, but someone else is in serious trouble. Danielle's beau still insists that someone showed up at the door while he was on the phone with Danielle. Shane indicated that Danielle said, Abby's behind the door, let me get off the phone, I'll call you back. Turned out Abby wasn't on the other side of the door. But investigators already know it wasn't Abby. So who was it? A welcomed visitor or someone with evil intentions? It appeared that Danielle had not told Shane the truth about who was standing behind the door. And if that was the case, why, why not? A closer look at Danielle's phone log reveals a shocking surprise. Nearly two weeks after 19-year-old college freshman Danielle Davis is brutally murdered in her Statesboro, Georgia apartment, Investigators believe her killer's number may finally be up. Turns out she called someone else after she said a hasty goodbye to Shane. I mean, that was super shocking. It was it was kind of kind of like an aha moment, like, yeah, this all makes all makes sense. On the other end of the line, someone Danielle knows quite well. One of the three young men who were at her apartment that awful night. Danielle Davis had dialed Daryl Priestley twice before her death, potentially minutes before her death. It was a huge breakthrough in the investigation. Why did Danielle dial Daryl when he just left her place with buddies Jared and Kurt a half hour earlier? We wanted to know what, what was that call all about? At the time, it, all we knew was she called his phone. It didn't last very long. It was just. 10 or so seconds. So we wanted to know, what did they have to talk about? Detectives wonder if he's the one who showed up at her door just minutes later. Sure is odd that Daryl didn't mention the call when police first questioned him that fateful night. He did admit to being at the apartment with his pals, but that's it. His 
initial story to law enforcement was I left the apartment with Jared and Kurt, and after that, I had no other contact with Danielle. The phone records, of course, told a different story. The lies are piling up for dishonest Daryl. First, he fabricated an alibi about studying at the library after leaving Danielle's apartment, and now this. He had changed his statement once. Uh, he had obviously not revealed the fact that Danielle had called his phone. And there was some real concerns. So investigator Wynn wastes no time hightailing it to McDonough, Georgia, where Daryl's on his holiday break. Daryl readily obliges the deputies when they escort him downtown for questioning. Investigators don't get far with their top suspect, who's clearly trying to hide his true colors. Daryl came in and there was very little to no emotion. Just never really seemed overly nervous. Buttoned up Daryl begins to crack when investigators surprise him with something he doesn't expect. They immediately confronted him with the phone records and the fact that they knew that Danielle had called his phone and he had an answer for that. His answer at that point was, well, I forgot my phone. Conveniently, Daryl claims he left his cell phone at Danielle's and knocked on her door hoping to retrieve it around 11 o'clock, which answers one major question. Daryl Priestley was the person knocking on Danielle's door when she was on the phone with Shane. Maybe she didn't want to tell Shane that, you know, this other guy was coming to visit her. And then Daryl tells investigators that when Danielle lets him in, they start searching for his phone. Daryl said that he asked Daniel to call his phone. So Daniel called his phone and they found it between the seat cushions on the couch. Investigators suspect Daryl may have left his phone on purpose. I think Daryl was physically attracted to Danielle. I think that he returned to her apartment in an attempt to act on that physical attraction. Cornered by the evidence, Daryl starts talking. He says it all began when he and Danielle started some harmless roughhousing. Daryl's story in that interview was that while they're horse playing, she trips and falls and the pencil gets lodged in her throat and she's gasping for air and basically she died in front of his eyes. And he panicked and didn't know, didn't know what to do next. And rather than call 911 or call the police, so he decided to basically stage the crime scene. It's a cockamamie story, and investigators are certain that it played out the other way around. Daryl killed Danielle, then tried to cover his tracks afterwards by staging an outlandish accident. The pencil was a mystery all throughout this case. The medical examiner answered the question kind of early on that it was post-mortem, but that created more questions because if it was post-mortem, then, then why do that? You've already murdered this person in a horrific way, so, so why add that additional injury? Now that investigators know the rest of the story, just two weeks after Danielle's demise, they can make their move. We had all the other physical evidence we needed at that point to prove that she was strangled. So that, that, was, that was a huge breaking point. Police arrest Daryl Priestley on December 22, 2009, and he's charged with felony murder in Danielle's death. Daryl knows he's backed into a corner and pleads guilty. And no one's more shocked than Danielle's family to hear he was the killer. When I learned Daryl Priestley was um, 
was also a student at Union Grove High School with Danielle and had known her for years. I was flabbergasted. I, I would have never thought in a million years that someone from our own town would do this to her. On January 10, 2010, a year after Danielle's death, Daryl Priestley is sentenced to life in prison. It puts to rest my heart because I know he's serving his time and he's there and he's away. It comforts me to know that Daryl's in a place that he can't murder another person. Danielle is forever gone from our lives. And it helps to know that he'll never kill another woman. Based on the evidence, this is what police believe happened that dark December evening. After Daryl shows up at Danielle's apartment and they locate his lost cell phone, Daryl puts the moves on Danielle, but she resists, sending him into a fury. I think once it got out of hand that there was obviously a lot of rage in that room. I think he snapped, he lost it, completely lost control in that moment. The real person that was lurking beneath the surface is what came out that night. Daryl pummels the tiny teen with his fists before strangling her. Then, once she's dead, he rams the pencil into her mouth to back up his very calculated story that it was all an accident. Instantly full of regret, he tries to hide what he did by burying Danielle. He took some time to really think through, what's my story gonna be down the road? Because he knew at some point he was gonna have to answer questions about what happened. So I think ramming the pencil down her throat after he murdered her, all of those things um, that he was doing to give himself a story that he would retell later. However, justice rules. And Daryl Priestley will spend the rest of his days in a cell. And I think the community considers this justice. A young lady's life was ended, and while Daryl Priestley's still alive, at least he cannot be out to possibly do something like this again. The folks of the small town of Statesboro will always remember the pretty student who was the life of the party. And her mom will never forget how many lives Danielle touched. Everyone has purpose in their life, and I believe that Danielle's was to, to make an impact on her friends' um, lives. And I think that in her passing, she affected so many more other people than just her, herself and her family and her friends.